Why on earth would we study church history? Let's just be honest ourselves. For the majority of people who are called evangelicals today, uh, church history pretty much goes back to uh, Billy Graham. What is he, 104 now, something like that? Uh, so he is in his, I think his late 90s, if I recall correctly. He's very elderly. Um, but for certainly in my own uh, my own upbringing, um, I do not personally recall any particular emphasis upon church history. And if you were not raised within a Reformed style church, um, certainly in the more fundamentalistic um, General Association of Regular Baptists, uh, as we were, um, got, got some garbs over there. Um, uh, church history was not was not an issue. Uh, there was no emphasis upon a recognition of where we stood in church history, or if there was, uh, how many of you have seen the little uh, Trail of Blood booklet? Anyone ever seen? I I was first given one of those uh, probably in the late. 1970s, or probably early 1980s at North Phoenix, someone handed me one of those. The landmark Baptist, the Baptists have always been around. There's the, it's, it's almost the Roman Catholic idea of apostolic succession except for Baptists. Um, and, uh, you know, and I had no earthly idea how to even evaluate something like that because, again, the idea of Church history, for many, and I use this term anymore advisedly, Protestants, is, well, that's all, they're all just a bunch of Roman Catholics uh, up until the Reformation. And even then, even with the Reformation, well, then they're a bunch of Lutherans or something, or a bunch of Presbyterians. And uh, so uh, there was just a, uh, a, a real uh, antipathy toward the idea, even though theologically we would say God had been building his church, it was just this little itsy-bitsy, can't-really-find-it-in-most-time-periods uh, type thing that was hidden away until the modern period where now we can, we can be out there in the open and, and so on and so forth. And so the idea of studying uh, church history uh, had no theological grounding. In, in my upbringing. Uh, and I'd like to try to provide a little bit of a theological foundation for taking Bible study time to study church history. Um, is this just simply something that Calvinists do because we like to talk about, um, well, we like to talk about Wycliffe and Huss, and, and uh, that, that's all just sort of the preamble uh, to our hero, Martin Luther, who would have probably killed any of us. Um, and Ulrich Zwingli, who probably would have killed any of us. Uh, and John Calvin, who would have at least banished any of us. Um, you know, that type of thing. Um, is it just a preamble? Is it just uh, so we can get to the Reformation part and, and eventually, for some people, so we can get to the Anabaptists, who were only barely orthodox on a lot of things? Um, that type of stuff, you know, is, is that what it's all about? I, I don't think so. 
there does seem to be in Scripture uh, a fair number of texts that, uh, for example, in Romans chapter 15, I don't think we've quite gotten there yet, or if we did, it was a day I wasn't here, but uh, in Romans chapter 15, we have the discussion of, of these things uh, took place uh, for our edification. They're an example unto us, and we are to look back, and it's sort of hard. I mean, remember we went through Hebrews. Uh, it would have been impossible to understand a lot of what the writer of the Hebrews was saying if you couldn't understand the history of the Jewish people and go back and and there's all these references to what God did in this person's life and God did in that person's life. And therefore, we should learn from this, this particular lesson. And so we have all sorts of examples um, of even, even the patriarchs. They were to uh, put up a, a, a stone pillar at a particular place. Why? As a reminder of what God had done in someone's life at that particular place. We sing the song. And I always talk about it in the second line. Um, Here I raise my Ebenezer, which we call an Ebenezer, and we automatically start thinking about the, the Christmas carol and wonder how Scrooge got into one of our hymns anyways. And um, uh, actually the Ebenezer is a stone of help. It's a, it's a reminder uh, of what God had done in our lives is putting up one of those pillars and saying, God did something in my life, and this is a remem- uh, something to remind me. Uh, we need reminders. I mean, my goodness, I have uh, uh, on my on all my Apple devices, I have the uh, reminder app, and uh, I just have to use that thing and and throw stuff in there. It doesn't actually mean I do what I put on there, but you know, eventually you just get used to seeing it, so you don't see it anymore, and, and it just doesn't work anymore. But I still need to use it, and and it's helpful to me. We need reminders, uh, or we become very focused upon our our own little world. Um, it becomes very easy to, to define all of reality just based upon my little experience here. And, and, and you know, it, it helps to recognize, first of all, that the world is a whole lot bigger than here. There are actually people in the world who could care less about Donald J. Trump or Ted Cruz or Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders or people like that, though you would be shocked, by the way. You know, I'll bet you half the people in here, I'll bet you more than half the people in here, couldn't name the prime ministers of Australia, Canada, and and United Kingdom. I'm not sure that I could. I know Trudeau's back in Canada because he's really weird. Um, but uh, it's amazing how much attention is paid on our elections outside our borders. When I travel, people are always tell me about this guy or tell me about that guy. I heard this and I heard that. They follow our elections really, really closely. It's it's a sort of freaky thing. Uh, unfortunately, especially in Europe, it's it's extremely slanted. And I go over there and go, what are you people talking about? Because even my conservative, Bible-believing uh, friends will start saying things. And I said, you listen to MSNBC NBC, way too much, because uh, that's basically all they have over there. But anyway, it, so it helps to widen our perspective to, to know the world's bigger than that. But it also helps us temporally uh, to look back. It's sort of not possible to look forward. <laughs> Um, so it, at least outside of a few things in, in Scripture. All right, George, we're starting church history, so we, 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 almost, we almost waited for you because uh, we, we're going to need you to write down, uh, you know, what day we started. And I'm not sure if you've got a new, new notebook you can use or, or whatever, but just, uh, just, just to let you know. Um, 
the only way that we can, since we can't look into the future so much, is look into the past. And theologically, you would think that would be one of the first things we would do. I mean, I've always believed, even when I didn't think church history was relevant, I've always believed the promise that Jesus gave us, uh, he was going to build his church. The gates of Hades would not prevail against that, which, by the way, when you think about it, really doesn't make any sense the way we've always thought about it. We've always thought that the, the, the church would be in a defensive mode. Actually, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. means we're marching in there, not them marching in here. It's, it's, an, it's an offensive thing, not a defensive thing. But anyway, uh, you know, theologically, I, I would have understood that, yeah, Christ is building his church. So why doesn't it immediately follow then, well, if he's been doing that for 2,000 years, then I've got 2,000 years of history to look back upon of Christ building his church. And it would seem wisdom to recognize, well, he was always dealing with people who had abiding sin. He was always dealing with people who were in a fallen state. So I bet we've made the same mistakes over and over and over again, haven't we? And maybe if we take the time to look back, we might be able to learn some things to where we don't make the same mistakes all over again. And I suppose in the back of my mind, I would have recognize the reality of the fact that there have been great controversies in theology. But honestly, I think most of us, when we come into the faith initially, uh, we sort of have the idea that what we believe, you know, sort of like what we believe about the Bible, that it floated down from heaven on a, uh, uh, on a, uh, on a silken pillow with leather binding and gold edges and thumb in indexing and and pretty ribbons uh, uh, bound uh, in there as well. Well, it didn't. Uh, it came down in a, in a very different fashion than that. And in the same way, um, theology, we would like to think that there is just some great, huge, divine theology book someplace, and we all just make reference to it, and it's really quite simple, and there aren't any questions, and there was never any development or... Uh, increase in understanding or anything like that at all, but that's not how it worked either. I mean, when you think about it, you have this, this incredible claim that we're making that God himself entered into his own creation and has established this, this church. And this, this, this church is made up of men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. There's no longer the Jew-Gentile distinction. We're all to be one in Christ Jesus, and it's it's for every race, every color, every tongue. There's to be no geographical boundaries, no ethnic boundaries, no nothing. I mean, it's, this, is a, this is an incredible thing. And so it's going to have to go out into that world. And you think about someone like a Peter, uh, who is a Galilean fisherman. Uh, let's say he, you know, well... It, the understanding historically is that he went, ended up going to Babylon at some point. Uh, you think maybe once you leave the narrow confines of ancient Israel, you start going other places. You start going to places where Greek philosophy uh, is is prevalent. That people are going to start asking questions about what you're teaching that will be different than what would be the prevalent questions there in Israel. So the questions are going to be 
phrased and put into uh, worldviews that maybe you've never run into before. And how are you going to answer those questions? Are you going to demand that they abandon uh, who they are and adopt a completely Jewish worldview so that they can understand uh, solely all those questions from a Jewish perspective, and so now you've got nice, simple answers. You can just go straight back to apostolic preaching and, and, and just repeat the, the, the answers to them. Well, that's not going to work if the gospel is, in fact, intended to go into all the world. And so, obviously, there are going to be missteps. Uh, there are going to be times when maybe even a well-known Christian leader uh, comes up with some bad answers for various reasons, sometimes not nefarious, but, but uh, certainly there are times we look back upon an, maybe an early church writer and we go, well, you know, in light of later reflection and deeper biblical exegesis, that really wasn't necessarily the best answer. But at the same time, what that tells us then is that we need to look at anyone in church history and we need to try to interpret them within the context of the time they lived. We stand on the shoulders of giants, whether we, whether we understand it or not, whether we can name Athanasius and place him at the right time and the right century and understand what his role was and, and whether, we, whether we know anything about these names. If you've, ever, if you've received a year's worth of teaching in the church, whether you know it or not, you have benefited from those men, even if those men's names were never mentioned to you. Because the things that they struggled with and the things that maybe they spent their entire lives focused upon have become a part of the fabric of the faith that has been delivered to you and even in the way it was explained to you. I mean, some of you have grown up in this church, not many of you, but, but some of you have grown up in this church, and so... Uh, you've been in the Sunday school classes that are meeting right now, and uh, uh, various teachers have, have taken the time. Uh, Mr. Porter and Mr. Smith, for example, with some of the older teenagers, have gone through uh, you know, sections on systematic theology or apologetics or things like that. And, and maybe there wasn't a specific historical element to the, the systematic theology part, but there was, whether you knew it or not. The influence was there. And even some of the language that we use um, very clearly came from a point of conflict in history where clarification came about because there had to be clarification. Biggest example of this we'll get to in really a matter of weeks was the, the first ecumenical council, ecumenical meaning worldwide, and that term has different meanings depending on who you talk to it, but uh, the first truly major sort of representing the entire church visible uh, council, Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. And the issue of the council was the teaching of a man named Arius uh, who taught that there was a time when the sun was not. There was a time when the sun was not. So the Son was God-like, the Son was invested with divine power, uh, but the Son 
when you think of the, the chasm that exists between everything that's created and everything that's not created, he's on the created side, not the not created side. So he is not eternal. He is the most exalted creature there is, but he's still a creature. Uh, that is what Arius taught. And many were those who were opposed to him, but it was discovered fairly quickly that Arius, bright fellow, um, I guess allegedly he was quite good looking and uh, liked to write music that, uh, that promoted his perspective. And that, if you want to promote a perspective, write music. People can remember music. I mentioned yesterday a, a terrible, horrible thing. This must be why I wasn't able to catch up to Gary in the race yesterday. But about uh, halfway through, I got a song stuck in my head. I got a song stuck in my head. And it was Let It Go. <laughs> now, let me tell you something. Uh, there are a lot of songs that get stuck in your head. That is not one of them that you want stuck in your head. Uh, it really... Because the cold has bothered me normally, okay. So, um, and I, I blame my granddaughter for uh, for that particular um, disaster that that overtook me uh, yesterday. But uh, yes, music is a very very effective way of communicating something, even if it has no meaning whatsoever. Has that song has no meaning at all, but you still can't get it out of your head, uh, no matter how hard you try. It's just just horrible. I I it I. See, what happened is I pulled over the side of the road and beat my head against the cactus for 15 minutes, and that's what, that was the difference between us. Right there, was 15 minutes was trying to get, let it go out of my head. Um, so Arius, anyways, back to Arius. Uh, Arius, uh, Arius is a sharp guy, musically inclined. He obviously got a lot of people on his side thinking this is, this, is a, you know, this is the proper way to go. And so they had to get together, and, and, and they discovered that that Arius could find a way around almost any verse in the Bible. Uh, you present almost any verse in Scripture that teaches the deity of Christ, and as long as you're inventive enough, and as long as uh, your ultimate authority isn't a consistent form of exegesis, you can find a way around it. And so the Arians could say... We affirm every single verse that you show us in this way. And so the term that the Council of Nicaea ended up using was a very controversial term. But they found an unbiblical term. It's not a term found in Scripture. But it was the only way that they could pull the mask off of the Arians. The Arians could not say, yes, I agree to that. And so they used this term... They said it's based on this biblical teaching and this biblical teaching and this biblical teaching, but it's not itself found in Scripture, but it is the only way to absolutely say, we're saying this, not this. And so orthodoxy for the Council of Nicaea was defined on the basis of the term homoousius versus homoousius, a single letter difference. Single letter difference. But homoousius, meaning of the same substance. Homoousius would be of like substance. So in describing the substance of the Son, is he of the same substance of the Father? Is he truly deity? Or is he of a like substance? Highly exalted, but not truly deity. And so 
what is the illustration here? The illustration here is that very often definitions, the very definitions that we use today were forged in the fires of controversy. When an issue comes up and it becomes uh, a controversy, that's when you get an, a, a special focus upon examination of the scriptures and what the scriptures teach as a whole and how to formulate this. Uh, and really, the first 500 years of the Christian era are filled with key controversies, some of which truly are central, some of which demonstrate that there is a great apostasy going on and aren't central at all. Yes, sir. Homo usius. We're going to be we're uh, we're going to be covering. Trust me, we're going to be covering the Council of Nicaea very deeply in a few weeks. It, this is just an illustration right now. Just guess at it and see how close you get once we get there. Um, <laughs> yeah, Homo usius and homoi usius were the two, and then there's hetero usius, which means of a, of a completely different uh, different nature. But the point is that these terms uh, they, they they come out of controversy. And many of the terms that we just simply take for granted, um, they themselves uh, had an origin in time as far as as coming to have the kind of significance that we have, uh, that we give to them today. A lot of people will ask me when I do public debates or uh, we're, we're getting, we've just, just booked the flights uh, for next month. Uh, I'm going to be gone the first half of May uh, to uh, Cape Town, Johannesburg, London, and Belfast. And uh, in all those places, I'll be doing, you know, things where I'll be answering questions just off the top of my head in, in groups and debates with Muslims and stuff like that. And people say, what, what, to, what, what classes that you took in Bible college and seminary have been the most useful to you? in doing what you do as, as an apologist. And my answer is always has been the same for, for decades now. Greek and church history. Greek and church history. Um, Greek, Hebrew to a lesser extent, but I'll, I'll be honest with you, 90% of the apologetic questions especially have to do with New Testament things, or even if they have to do with Old Testament things, they have to do with the Greek Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. So Greek is far more important along those lines. I'm not trying to diminish the importance of Hebrew. I'm just simply saying apologetically. But then the other, most people are a little surprised. They, they, they think systematic theology or something like that. Well, yeah, it's important. But to me, it, it just, the amount of times that church history gets twisted and then used as a club against Christians is amazing. It really is. Uh, and the only reason it works is because we almost never talk about it. I mean, amongst Bible-believing Christians, um, church history just is not a focus. And so people can come along and they will, sometimes they'll use facts. They'll, they'll actually be truthful, um, factual information, but then they put it into a false context and turn it into a weapon against us. And so... If someone says, well, yeah, but, you know, the doctrine of the Trinity wasn't worked out until the 4th century, so how can you say it's really relevant? That's a half-truth 
that has been twisted out of its context. Um, were there Christological controversies all the way up to the Council of Chalcedon? Yes. Does that mean that the doctrine of the Trinity is irrelevant or even non-definitional? No. But since we don't know much about the controversies, since we don't necessarily know uh, what the relationship is between biblical theology and systematic theology, um, and how creedal formulations are developed and things like that, we very frequently end up being silenced, basically by our own ignorance, not by the weight of the actual argument that's being used against us. And so, it's especially relevant today, even more so than when I, I first taught church history the year after I graduated from seminary uh, at Grand Canyon uh, College back then, or had it become Grand Canyon University then? I forget if it had uh, made that transition uh, it's hard to even recognize the place anymore. It's so huge. But um, uh, I first taught church history at Grand Canyon when I was scholar in residence there about 1989, 90, somewhere around in there. And uh, I could tell when the students came in that they were just sort of expecting to you know, take notes, take some tests, and survive. Um, Thankfully, when I was in seminary, um, I had a tremendously good and gifted church history student. And he made the subject under, not only understandable, but you could tell he was passionate about it. You could tell that this was something that really meant something to him. And I appreciated the fact that he had been to Europe and he had been to some of these places and he could tell stories about stuff. And now I've had the opportunity. Uh, to, to do some of that. I'll be uh, debating on the subject of Roman Catholicism in Wittenberg next year uh, for the 500th anniversary. Um, I've, I've stood at, at the Castle Church door in Wittenberg, Germany. It's Wittenberg over there, but anyways. Um, uh, when we talk about Zwingli and the Anabaptists and the third baptism, anybody know what the third baptism is? third baptism was drowning. Because uh, the Anabaptists had been baptized as infants. And then they were called Anabaptists, which means to be baptized again. Of course, they reject that terminology. They didn't believe they were baptized properly the first time anyway. So they had been baptized from, their, the, from Zwingli's perspective a second time. And so the third baptism is where you drown them. And uh, the drownings of the Anabaptists were done primarily off of a particular bridge, uh, which is still right there in the, uh, in the heart of Zurich. And uh, I walked over that bridge of uh, just what? When was, I, when was I in Zurich? What? I forgot when that was. Sometime last year. Uh, I think it was last year. What was that? November, December? I don't know. It was pretty nippy. Um, sorry? It was in the fall sometime. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so I, I, I stood at that spot where the um, Anabaptists received their... Um, and we walked through the building where the, the trials were held. It's a little creepy, uh, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, and the vast majority of people walking past those spots today have no earthly idea. No earthly idea of what took place there or why. And even most Christians anymore would think that it really doesn't matter. It, it doesn't have any particular meaning anymore. Uh, but the fact of the matter is it, it, it does. Uh, it has a lot of meaning. Uh, because it has been a part of what has formed our identity and our character 
And if we don't know these things, then we, we don't possess the tools to be able to detect tradition even within our own beliefs. Um, it, it, history provides us with an exceptionally important tool to be able to recognize uh, when we are being influenced by, by forces that we may not even know existed, but they are historical forces. They are, they are voices from the past that continue speaking to this day. And everyone has them. The less you know about history, the less you can identify the, the force and the weight that those voices have. Uh, and that's a bad situation to be in because most of the people that I know of uh, that I've experienced who are the most enslaved to tradition are the very same people who have extremely skewed views of church history. Uh, for example, Dave Hunt, the late Dave Hunt, and I wrote a book, um, He Against Calvinism, I Defending Calvinism, and, and if you ever listened much to Dave Hunt, he would talk a lot about church history. But from a scholarly perspective, it was this incredibly twisted, unfair, only see what you want to see on the page version of church history because he had such strong traditions. But he didn't know he had strong traditions. And in fact, those of you who have heard the encounter he and I had years and years ago on uh, uh, the radio station here in Phoenix, um, when I was interviewing him, uh, at one point I said to him, Dave, that's just your tradition speaking. His response to me was, James, I have no tradition." And so someone who can honestly, and he meant it, can honestly say, I have no traditions, is the greatest slave there is to tradition. Because if you think you don't have any, you have no way of filtering it. You have no way of identifying it. You have no way of analyzing it. You have no way of asking the question, is this really a biblical teaching or not? And so uh, Hunt was also really well known for attacking people in church history in a very unfair manner. He, he detested Augustine. He said Augustine was the father of Roman Catholicism and blah, 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 blah. He would use genetic fallacies uh, where if Augustine said something he disagreed with, that meant, and then you've got this whole long line of, of things that turns Augustine into this terrible, horrible person. One of the things that hopefully I will communicate to you over and over again during the course of this study is that we have to examine people in church history, in the light of when they live, applying our modern standard to them is simply unfair, and there's no one sitting in this room that would feel overly good if someone three or four hundred years from now decided to analyze your life in light of their circumstances. That's unfair. They may know things you don't know. You may know things they don't know. Uh, the idea of, of that kind of anachronism uh, Stepping outside of the actual context and, and importing things that, you know, when, when Augustine did what he did in regards to Donatists, another issue we will get into, um, the result over centuries of time, you could literally say, was the Inquisition. But Augustine didn't know that. Augustine could not have foreseen uh, how his words would be used, how the context... The, uh, and culture would change. And so to hold him accountable as if he was going, oh, 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 let's start the Inquisition, uh, is just absurdity. And yet, there are books filled with that kind of stuff sitting on the shelves of Christian bookstores or these days, 
digitally stored on Amazon's hard drive someplace. Um, however, you end up getting that kind of information. Church history is also one of the only um, ways that we can gain some kind of perspective in looking at ourselves. Looking at ourselves. Um, and that, that may be uncomfortable to a lot of us, to look at ourselves. But church history sort of functions as a mirror that we can hold up to ourselves and because, because, look, we are so close to the controversies of our day that trying to step back and gain any perspective so as to see things from another viewpoint or another angle or, or, or anything like that is, is really, really difficult when we are in the heat of the moment, when we, we only know what we know. And we think we know enough to be able to make sound decisions, but the fact of the matter is, maybe on some issues we don't. And, and so what's one way in which we can maybe get some perspective but to use the mirror of church history? Because look, when you think about it, while the early church didn't have the technology that we have, um, they're human beings, they're made in the image of God, they're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Um, and what's the purpose of God in their sanctification but to conform them to the image of Christ? So you can change the clothing. You can change the language. Uh, you can change the technology. You can change the politics. Um, but there's still going to be some tremendous parallels. And it's pretty much the same process being worked out but in different circumstances. And so I'm not saying that you can always, I mean, in one way, we face issues that almost no generation before us has faced. What do you do with designer babies? What do you do now that we have mapped the human genome? Uh, what do you do uh, to, to deal with uh, the advancement in the hands of secular God-haters, of technologies that could produce either a super race or the walking dead. One of the two. Um, what do you do with the proliferation of nuclear weapons in the hands of absolute loons, such as the head of North Korea? I mean, people that are just certifiably insane, evilly insane. Um, I mean, the, the current leadership of North Korea makes Hitler look like a, a youth group leader. I mean, it, it just, the, these, this, this guy's a nut, and he's got nuclear weapons and, uh, and rockets. Do not see a good end to this, okay? You know, this is, this is, this is not a good thing. Okay, nuclear proliferation and DNA splicing and CRISPR technology not something that Augustine dealt with. Okay, I get that. Um, but through history, there have been advancements, for example, in science. And we can look at the stumbles, the falls, the face plants, as well as the successes and how the church responded to these things. 
of course, in the midst of all that, we then have the question of what was the church? I mean, that's a big question today. That's a very amorphous term. Uh, what defines the church? Can we identify the church historically? How do we differentiate between what would be called the external church or the professing church and the institutional church over against the true church, which we would identify as the saints of all ages? When did Roman Catholicism arise? How do you even define Roman Catholicism? Even today, I mean, I think it was a lot easier to find Roman Catholicism 100 years ago than it is today. I mean, when you've got two popes alive today who clearly do not believe the same thing on a fundamental level, what does that mean? How do you even define uh, Rome today? And when did Rome come into existence? And how much bad theology can a true Christian actually believe? These are important questions, and they're questions people struggle with. And even amongst Reformed folks, uh, you know, we, we draw those lines in our minds, but very frequently not so much in a way that if we applied them historically, we would be consistent. For example, we know that the Reformers loved Augustine. They quote Augustine all the time. But let's not fool ourselves. Um, you would be somewhat lost in Augustine's church at least the first few Sundays. And Augustine would have had certain beliefs, or at least certain, maybe not dogmas, but concepts and ideas that you would have gone, what? Uh, where, where'd you get that? And he'd probably think the same thing about us too. And so how are we in the same church? Are we in the same church? I mean, there, there are some who would say, oh, no, 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 no. But the, the Reformers certainly didn't believe that. Uh, the Reformers did not believe that they were founding a new church. They didn't believe that the church had simply passed away. So how do we, how do we define what the church is? What's the level of doctrinal uh, accuracy that is necessary for defining the Christian church? Uh, can we even tell necessarily from reading the writings of the ancient church exactly where someone was? Can we? What's what's the ability of someone's written work to really reveal where their heart is? I mean, these are all issues that enter into our consideration of the generations that have come before us, and I would think um, that most of us would just naturally recognize the necessity to extend some grace in the study of church history. Because most of us don't think about the fact that someday, unless the Lord returns, we will be a part of church history. And as such, it's real easy for us to go, well, I don't want to be, I want to be judged by those who come after me in an unfair or ungracious manner. Some of you are going, no one's going to care uh, about me. Well, okay, but you don't know that. I mean, when, you, when we do think about some of the figures of church history, some of them were spectacularly unknown people who in unusual situations 
became very, very well known. Um, things were thrust upon them. And uh, that may not happen to you, but the, the fact of the matter is, you, if you just sort of set that aside, you recognize the need for someone to honestly, adequately, and fairly analyze what you believed in light of what you knew, not on the basis of what someone else is going to come up with later on. And so that is, a, I think, an absolutely necessary attitude for us, uh, for us to have. So all that requires the study of church history. Now, not everything in church history is overly exciting. Uh, we get to the Reformation. Uh, I love taking time uh, to walk down the various rows of relics in the castle church in Wittenberg. And we talk about how if you stop before this particular spot in the castle church, there on display is a feather from the wing of the angel Gabriel. And you stop and you bow and you pray before that station, before the feather from the wing of the angel Gabriel, and you receive a certain indulgence, a certain number of days out of the suffering of purgatory, a transfer of merit from the Satharis Meritorum into your own account so that you may not suffer in purgatory for his life. And then you walk down the road, well, the row, and you stop, and here, oh, here, here is a true crown, here is a true thorn from the crown of thorns. Yes, yes. And so you pray again, and then you go to the next. And I've kept this one just for you. We, you come to the next, and here is a genuine portion of one of Jesus. Yes, indeed. Part of all the cloth diapers of Jesus right here. You pray before it, and you receive indulgences. And the catalog is absolutely fascinating. There's a stone from Mary's house. Well, pfft. All of Mary's house was trans transferred by angels to, to Loretto, Italy. Uh, you didn't know this, but uh, carried. I mean, just, you know, big old honking angelic transport uh, right over to Italy. Uh, and all sorts of, so there's some things in church history. Some of you are looking at me. No, no, seriously, I, I mean it. Um, some things in church history, really interesting. Some other things especially right toward the beginning, are so foundational, they're a little tough. They're a little tough, I'll have to admit. We've got to know something about the Greek context into which the gospel went. So we've got to know a little something about Stoicism, Epicureanism, da 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 da, da. Got to do it. Not everything's equally ex interesting or exciting. Yes, sir? Just a little bit past. Um, I've never taught past then, and... Um, uh, so we'll, we'll pretty much get just, just past the period of Reformation. Yep. Anything else from the introduction? Right. Have I, have I at least sold you on the fact that it would sort of be good to spend some time covering this, uh, even though we spent, what, 11 years or something? Yes, sir.
Yeah, it's interesting. There, there, you can frequently find parallels, though I'll be honest with you, I don't know until the modern period that anyone could have ever dreamed up the prosperity gospel stuff. Because until the modern period where you've got such ease of life, um, the, the idea of name it and claim it, uh, always be healthy stuff, just just wouldn't have flown very well, even though the amazing thing is uh, some of the places that it, it works the best today are places like South Africa, um, where it's, it's huge in Africa. It's extremely destructive to the faith in Africa. And you would think, but it's, it's an escape mechanism. It's, it's, hey, might as well believe this because my reality is no better than that anyway, so why not? Um, but generally what you can do is you can find parallels. Uh, we, will, we will encounter the Montanists. Um, in the early church and really strong parallels to what's on I never mentioned the station but it's between 20 and 22 uh, and um, really really strong parallels as far as prophets and and um, and stuff like that uh, but it's normally more on a conceptual basis than a you know specific thing I mean the Arians for example very similar to Jehovah's Witnesses but they were more orthodox than Jehovah's Witnesses Jehovah's Witnesses did not deny the personality of the Holy Spirit. So there can be differences, but it's, it's more of a conceptual thing. Yeah, it can be. There's a lot of stuff you look back and go, ah, yeah, there's, that's, that's still happening today. Definitely, definitely. Real quick. Not particularly. Uh, it's not my, not really my area of study. Um, it uh, can get pretty complicated and would take a lot of a lot of preparation. Uh, and by the time we get done with all this, most people are going to be ready to get back to some biblical studies. So. So. All right, there we go. There's lesson number one in the books. Let's uh, close the time for word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. We ask now as we go into worship that you will settle our hearts and our minds, that we will focus our attention upon your truth, that you will meet with us and you will be honored and glorified in all things. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.